Hey, thanks, Hannah. And thank you so much, uh, of course, Kissy and uh, Jericho and Pilar. Great to see you guys. And Jericho, thanks for that super encouraging uh, word. You know, it is so important during this time as we're separated that we are staying connected. Uh, we can still do it. It's a little more challenging, but we just need to uh, work at it and really buy up those opportunities uh, where we can be uh, in fellowship with one another, uh, whether it's virtually or individually, personally, um, you know, or corporately at times like uh, the park tonight. If you're able to come out and if you're interested in that, we would love to see you. If you need uh, prayer for something or you have a special need, we'd love you to come out and just let us know about that so that it gives us uh, kind of an opportunity uh, in person with a little distance uh, to minister to you. Um, as well, uh, just want to encourage you about that Monday night uh, Zoom prayer meeting. Uh, it's a great time, a blessed time, just a, been a neat opportunity just to be praying with one another and just to see a handful of folks uh, from the church there, sort of, uh, you know, see those faces on the screens. Um, but as well, even if you're not able to join us in person to pray, uh, we would love to be praying for you. So uh, it's just an opportunity where we lift up the different needs within the body. And as Hannah mentioned, you know, nationally, certainly there's no shortage of things to be praying about. But if you have something, uh, a need that we can be praying about for you, uh, just shoot us a quick email at the church office at that info at CCMV address. And we will uh, include that and pray for you, wh whatever that need is. As well, if you need uh, encouragement or a counseling appointment, um, just let us know. And we are here to minister to you, again, even though we don't see each other uh, every week on Sunday mornings. Um, you know, a great question maybe to ask yourself in terms of this connection, um, you know, it's just who did I connect with this week from the body of Christ. Certainly, we all have people that we're connecting with as we work. Um, but as you know, fellowship with a brother or sister in the Lord is uh, is just a different animal. There's a, a sense to it that we can't get anywhere else. So as I said, connection is still possible. We just have to kind of go that extra mile to ensure that it happens. So just a quick encouragement uh, to you this week to really buy up the opportunities and look for opportunities where you can minister and where you can encourage a brother or sister uh, in the Lord. Get out your contacts, uh, you know, dust off your, your address book and, uh, and reach out to some folks um, in the church. So with all of that said, uh, turn to Acts chapter 17 as we continue our great study through, uh, through the book of Acts. We're going to be uh, in the second half, the, the ending part of Acts chapter 17 this morning. Of course, we're continuing on with what is now known as Paul's second missionary journey. And remember, we were first at Philippi, and then we were at Thessalonica, and then last week we were at Berea. And this morning, we're going to arrive at Athens. Athens with its awe-inspiring architecture and art and culture. And what we're going to see is that the Apostle Paul's experience here in Athens is very different than anything that we've seen so far. And we're also going to see that the Apostle Paul had to kind of adjust his approach slightly in order to really be able to minister effectively at Athens. 
Um, we could literally spend a few different Sundays on just this one section of these 19 verses. Um, you'll be glad to know that we're not going to do that. We're going to cover it all this morning. Uh, but what we're going to do is we're going to look just kind of quickly at Paul's arrival into the city. We're going to make note of the, the spiritual darkness of that city. And then we're just going to move fast, sort of simply scratch the surface, kind of hit the high points, if you will, uh, of Paul's unique sermon to that city, and then spend kind of a few extra minutes at the end uh, making some very specific and some important applications, I think, to the ways that Paul's adjusted approach here at Athens um, becomes a very important and a really illuminating example for us today, um, specifically where and when it is that we find ourselves living as Christians uh, in the world. So uh, hopefully that's all here for us this morning. Let's just pray and ask that the Lord would, uh, would bless and just reveal his heart to us uh, through his word today. So Father, we do thank you, Lord. We thank you for the body of Christ, Lord. We thank you for our precious local body here at Calvary Chapel Mountain View. We thank you for the ways that you are working um, amongst us, Lord, during this uh, unprecedented season. And we pray for that to continue, Lord. We, we're confident that it will continue, Lord, as you complete that good work that you've begun uh, in each one of us. Father, we pray that that work would continue even now, here, as we go to your word. Father, and that you would use your word to speak your heart to your people this morning, Lord. We pray that you'd give us ears to hear what uh, you would say to your church, Lord, uh, to each and every one of us individually, Lord, and really, uh, Lord, to us as, a, as an entire, entire church uh, collectively. And so we ask these things, Lord, and we ask them in the unmatched name of Jesus. Amen. Amen. So remember last week, what a wonderful time we had back there at Berea. We remember the response from these students of the scriptures. No doubt what a great encouragement it must have been to Paul uh, and his team. We, we talked about the nobility, right? The fair-mindedness which made these Bereans open to those different things that the apostle Paul was preaching to them. And then uh, their diligence and their discipline to really search the scriptures to confirm those things that Paul was teaching. They really wanted to make the Bible just the sole basis of their belief. And what a blessing that time must have been for Paul. It must have been almost like he'd stumbled in to Calvary Chapel Mountain View and the wonderful saints here. So as a result, remember that Luke told us that many of the Jews, and he said that even more of the Greeks, uh, believed and received Jesus. And we saw uh, once again that a church was born there. And then as we've seen uh, Paul before, he kind of pressed on. He left Silas and Timothy behind for a bit to strengthen that brand new baby church. And we read in our last verse, last time, verse 15 of Acts chapter 17, it said that those who conducted Paul brought him to Athens and receiving a command for Silas and Timothy to come to him with all speed, they 
departed. And so that's right where we're going to pick up today. Paul there in Athens waiting for Paul, uh, pardon me, for Silas and for Timothy. And we read in verse 16, it says that while Paul waited for them at Athens, his spirit was provoked within him when he saw that the city was given over to idols. Now, Athens, of course, was a a city that was famous for being a a center of religion and of culture and of art and also of education. No longer was it a big commercial or a, a political hub, but it was still one of the most glorious, one of the most important cities in the ancient world. And no doubt as Paul sailed to Athens from the sea there near Berea, no doubt he was ready to be impressed by this famous and this historic city. And yet, when he arrived alone there and started kind of to to tour Athens on his own, rather than be impressed, he was really only depressed Right? He was depressed at the, the magnitude of the idolatry that he saw surrounding him everywhere. Luke tells us the city was given over to idols. Literally, it means it was under idols or it was swamped by idols. Historians estimate for us that there were likely over 3,000 distinct altars and different temples built to different deities there within the city. And one old Greek philosopher back before the time even of the Apostle Paul visiting, he wrote that in Athens, it's easier to find a god than a man. So the idea here is that these images were everywhere, on every building, in every square. Uh, Not only of the Greek gods, but also the gods that were being worshipped in the Far East, in Asia, and the gods of the Egyptians, and the gods of the Romans, gods of other peoples in faraway distant lands. And one author explained this. He said that practically every false deity worshipped on earth could be found in Athens. And yet, he says, this was the educational center of the world. Now we today, of course, we admire Greek sculpture. We admire Greek architecture as beautiful works of precious art. And yet in Paul's day and in Paul's mind, he knew that he was really simply surrounded by nothing less than demonic idolatry. The city was given over to a kind of very cultured paganism, right? The worship of many different gods. And so the art of Athens was simply a reflection of the worship of Athens. And so here, the intellectual capital of the world was producing, and of course, it was exporting idolatry. And Paul could see beneath this beautiful veneer of the art and the architecture and what he saw spiritually was the truth that this was simply sin and superstition. And so it says that his spirit was stirred up within him. And therefore, it says in verse 17, he reasoned in the synagogue with the Jews and with the Gentile worshipers and in the marketplace daily with those who happened to be there. 
So even before, right, without waiting for Silas and Timothy to arrive, here Paul was compelled to start in straight away, to start preaching the gospel immediately wherever he could. Right. First of all, finding that Jewish synagogue, as he usually did, once again, starting to reason there with the Jews and those God-fearing Gentiles, reasoning with them from the scriptures, proving from the Old Testament prophecies that Jesus was the Messiah in fulfillment of all of those things. But then we notice here that he also started in simultaneously to take his message right to the streets. You get the sense that he's talking to anyone who would listen. And here, he's simply following the pattern of all the Greek teachers, and he took his message into the marketplace, or the agora. And this is the place where the men would assemble daily to really discuss philosophy and to transact all of their business. And so we have this this picture here of Paul simultaneously waging spiritual warfare on two different fronts, right? Missing out no opportunity to converse with anyone who was ready to listen to him. And what we're going to see is that Paul faced a very challenging audience here in Athens, maybe even more so than anywhere else that we've seen so far, because remember, this was such a, a highly cultured and an educated city. It was a very proud city of its uh, its history, uh, an intellectual center focused on uh, just nothing more than the exchange of ideas. We think about cities like Oxford or, or Cambridge there in England. And uh, what this would have provided, though, it would have provided for Paul plenty of people who would be more than willing to engage in this kind of intellectual debate with him. And what we see next is that down there in the marketplace, he very soon came into contact with a whole running the gamut of different belief systems. And he found himself, starting in verse 18, preaching to these opposing world philosophies. It says in verse 18, that then certain Epicurean and Stoic philosophers encountered him. And some said, what does this babbler want to say? Others said, he seems to be a proclaimer of foreign gods, because he preached to them Jesus and the resurrection. So Paul's teachings very quickly kind of piqued the interest of the philosophers from two opposing philosophies, right? The Epicureans and the Stoics. Now we think today of the word Epicurean, you know, right, the pursuit of pleasure and, and, and the love of fine living, especially now we use it in the context maybe of, of fine foods. And so the Epicureans were those who pursued pleasure as their chief purpose in life. Most of all, what the Epicureans valued was the pleasure of a peaceful life, a life free from pain and free from superstitious fears, including those superstitious fears about death. So the Epicureans were very much materialists, and they were also atheists. Now, the Stoics 
They rejected all of the different idolatry of the many pagan gods. And what they taught was that there was one just sort of all-encompassing world god, that, that God was in everything. So they were pantheists. And they believed that wisdom came from being free from any kind of intense emotion or you know, to be unmoved by joy and unmoved by grief and to instead just sort of willingly submit yourself to nature and the things that came your way. So their emphasis was very much on practical discipline. Their emphasis was on personal development and on uh, achieving that state of self control. They believed that there was no divine direction, that there was no specific destiny for mankind. So what's interesting about these opposing philosophies, here you have the Epicureans who say enjoy life, the Stoics simply say endure life, and yet neither of them really believed in eternal life. And so notice what it was that Paul preached to both the very same message he preached wherever he went, he wanted to explain to them how they could each enter into life through faith in God's risen son, Jesus. Now that word there in verse 18, where it says that he preached, literally it means specifically that he preached the gospel. And make a note of this because it reminds us that though Paul is here speaking in a very different context, a very different city to a very different kind of an audience, his message didn't change at all. Here in Athens, his focus was still on Jesus and the resurrection theologically. But what we see is that this was a concept that was totally beyond the grasp of these philosophers philosophically. And so we noticed that they mocked him. They called him a babbler. Now that's an interesting word because it literally means like a bird picking up a seed or simply a, a seed picker. And the idea here is that they were saying that Paul was someone who was just, you know, collecting various ideas, a little from here and a, a little from over here, and then teaching them as his own. Right? All of these secondhand thoughts that he just kind of picked up and borrowed from others. And it certainly is an ironic, not a very flattering description as the man we know was the greatest theological mind and the greatest Christian missionary in history. And yet what we do see, notice next that they were interested enough in what he had to say that they wanted to hear more, and they wanted to hear more in a little bit more of a formal forum. Look what it says in verse 19. It says, They took him and brought him to the Areopagus, saying, May we know this new doctrine is of which you speak. For you are bringing some strange things to our ears. Therefore, we want to know what these things mean. For all the Athenians and the foreigners who were there spent their time in nothing else but either to tell or to hear some new thing. So from the marketplace, Paul had now graduated to the Areopagus, right up there on the top of what we call Mars Hill. 
was 337 feet in elevation. It was located right there in the center of Athens. It was the place where the real philosophers hung out and where the council, the Athenian Council of Education and Religion, it's where they would meet daily. And so whenever there was a new kind of a religious thought that was you know, propounded or, or, or proposed, it was this group who would hear and who would evaluate that thought. So Paul wasn't specifically on trial here, but the sense is more so that the council simply wanted him kind of to have the opportunity to expound a little bit on the things he had been telling the people down there in the Agora, in the marketplace. After all, like Luke points out, life in Athens revolved entirely around hearing and telling things that were new. And so here comes Paul into town, and he certainly had something new that piqued their interest. These ancient Greeks loved uh, this constant and always changing stream of news and of information. They would have been the ones constantly searching for some new thing, scouring the internet, right? Searching their news feeds, ready, waiting to, to comment. Right, experts on everything, endlessly analyzing things and continually discussing things. And it may sound like I was talking about some of your friends, right? Or maybe some of your family, or maybe some of the people that you work with. But remember, the old saying is true that if it's true, it's not new. And if it's new, it's not true. So if you're searching, for some new book or some hot blog, if you're searching for some new technique or the latest great teaching that is suddenly going to unlock the mystery of your spirituality, you are going to constantly find yourself on some sort of a wild goose chase. Remember, Peter promised us that God has given us, he says, all things that pertain to life and godliness through the knowledge of him who called us by glory and virtue. So to paraphrase, you know, everything we need to know, we already know in Jesus Christ. So here's the Apostle Paul, right? He's with this audience of the most learned men in the most learned city in the world. He has this opportunity now to preach the gospel and what we have in the remainder of our text today is Paul's message up there on Mars Hill and many rightly refer to this as a masterpiece of communication it's one of the few examples we have of Paul's sample sermons which Luke has recorded for us and yet what we're going to see is that it's very different in character than what we've seen so far because we've watched him reason from the scriptures with Jews and God-fearing Gentiles who were all well-versed in those Old Testament scriptures but this one shows the way that Paul is going to approach the way that Paul is going to address this group of highly intellectual pagans and he begins by making known to them what is unknown to them. Look at verse 22. It says, Then Paul stood in the midst of the Areopagus and said, Men of Athens, I perceive that in all things you are very religious. 
For as I was passing through and considering the objects of your worship, I even found an altar with the inscription, To the Unknown God. Therefore, the one whom you worship without knowing, him I proclaim to you. So notice right off the bat that because Paul couldn't start out with an exposition of the scriptures, Paul begins with some more kind of general references to religion. He was building a bridge with his Athenian audience. He, he really met them where they were and then began to build from there. And he brings up the fact that amongst these nearly 3,000 altars found around the city to all of these various pagan gods, many of these altars were dedicated to the unknown god, which in the Athenian superstition, that was put there to cover any god that may have been accidentally left out of all of the other shrines and temples that had been built. So what Paul is doing here, right off the bat, he takes their implicit admission that God does exist, and then he couples that with their, their admission that they might be ignorant of this God, and then he promises that he can be the one to finally introduce them to that God that they admit that they don't even know. And imagine at this point how he would have captured their attention, how their heads must have been spinning already. And I think that just in this whole unknown God business, it's a reminder for us all of the truth that we as human beings are incurably religious because we were specifically and specially designed to be that way. It's in the book of Ecclesiastes that Solomon writes that God has made everything beautiful in its time and also he has put eternity in our hearts. So unlike other creatures, man, we have this awareness and we have a longing for things that are eternal. And Solomon tells us that God put this purposely inside of our hearts. It's that sense that there is something more. And what's interesting is that if you study, what you find is that almost every culture has different traditions or customs or ways of thinking that reflect this biblical truth. Different mythology or folklore, all that are trying to explain what is unexplainable, right? It was the French mathematician and physicist Blaise Pascal, he's the one who first said that there's a God-shaped vacuum in the heart of every man which cannot be satisfied by any created thing. He says, but only by God the Creator made known through Jesus Christ. It's not hard for us to look around us or maybe to think back on our lives and to see the kinds of things that people are constantly trying to use to fill up that vacuum, that void within them, right? From, you know, sex and drugs and rock and roll to different relationships or wealth or simply the pursuit of power. And when we do, what we see 
is that as a society, we are no less religious, no less idolatrous, if you will, than were the Athenians. Our idols just now look a little bit different. Right? Our idols, no longer are they statues to imagined gods, but now our idols are parked in garages. Right? Our idols now are, are moored at docks. Sometimes they are hundred-story shrines to our wealth and our, our ingenuity. Sometimes our idols are these altars that are built as theories to our own intellect, right? And the way that we glorify man and his accomplishments, right? We see secular humanism. It's that embracing of human reasoning apart from any kind of a faith or a connection on God. That whole system of thought, that secular humanistic worldview has become increasingly in vogue. It's become the standard now over the last just 100 plus years. We see even still Stoicism, Epicureanism are still not only alive, but they continue to thrive in our current culture. We see people using these different sort of approaches at seeking some kind of self-fulfillment completely independent of a faith in God or the acknowledgement that he exists. And again, it's just like Solomon would write in Ecclesiastes that there is nothing new under the sun. So wherever you're joining us from today, welcome back to the city of Athens, right? Welcome to this elusive search for this unknown God, which Paul now begins to make known to these men here atop Mars Hill. And he's going to introduce him first, starting in verse 24, as the creator. Look what it says. It says that God, who made the world and everything in it, since he is Lord of heaven and earth, does not dwell in temples made with hands, nor is he worshipped with men's hands, although he, as though he needed anything, since he gives to all life breath and all things. What's interesting here is that if you read about the work of missionaries who are, are serving unreached and oftentimes untouched people groups, oftentimes they'll report that the very best place to begin in teaching a truly pagan people about the one true and living God is to start with the account of creation. And this is precisely where Paul begins with the people here in Athens. He introduces God as the one who created everything and yet is distinct from his creation. Paul says he's bigger than any temple that man's hands could build. He's better than anything that man could make to represent him. And notice Paul says that he is in need, God is in need of nothing that man could possibly provide. And he said this because in all of those different temples dedicated to those different idols, the priests would often bring food and they would bring other necessities that these gods might need as gifts to those gods to support them. And yet Paul's point here is that the true God doesn't need anything from man, but instead that he's the source of all life and of breath 
and of everything for man. You know, the Greeks had different theories about the creation. They even held to sort of a form of evolution, if you will. The Epicureans had an emphasis on this chance combination of atoms. The Stoics, of course, had this sort of a virtual pantheism that they believed in. But Paul points to the creation as the introduction to the evidence for a creator, right? It's the same thing he would write to the Romans, in Romans chapter 1 and verse 20, Paul says that since the creation of the world, that God's invisible attributes are clearly seen, being understood by the things that are made, even his eternal power and Godhead, so that they are without excuse. So there's a, a general revelation to mankind in the majesty of the creation that is there to point us back to God as the one who created it. That, it, that creation bears witness to the existence of a creator. And so now Paul continues, he's building on this fact. Watch the way that he's going to show them now that not only is God the creator, but he's also our creator. He says in verse 26, and he has made from one blood every nation of men to dwell on all the face of the earth and has determined their pre-appointed times and the boundaries of their dwellings so that they should seek the Lord in the hope that they might grope for him and find him, though he is not far from each one of us. For in him we live and move and have our being, as also some of your own poets have said, for we are also his offspring. And therefore, since we are the offspring of God, we ought not to think that the divine nature is like gold or silver or stone, something shaped by art and man's devising. So Paul's whole point here is that this unknown God that Paul was revealing to them, hadn't simply created the universe to then abandon it to some kind of random chance, but that this God remained intimately and actively connected to his creation and specifically with us as the, the jewel or the gem of that creation. Paul even quotes from two different contemporary Greek poets to support this point. Now, don't misunderstand. He's not quoting these men because they were prophets or because everything that they, they taught was of God. But he quotes them because in these specific words, they reflected a biblical truth. And by using these poets, Paul could continue to construct that bridge to this pagan audience. It's a way of saying, hey, look, we've read the same authors. You know, I understand the way that you think. And so in effect, he's, he's really using their own people to prove his point. And that was this, that the false gods of the Greeks were said to be very distant, gods who had no concerns about the, the problems and the needs of men. But the true God, that Paul was introducing them to. The God of creation, Paul says, is also the God of history and of the nations, right? That he's guiding the events 
of all mankind. And he's arranging the years. He's determining the countries in which various peoples would dwell. And he's doing that for their protection and for their preservation. Now, I don't want to get off on too much of a tangent here. But if you remember in Genesis chapter 10, remember after the flood we see that boundaries were established, right? In the the table of nations, right? All men were supposed to dwell within these specific places nationally. And that was part of God's plan for mankind, for the world in its fallen state. And as we look at history, what we see, we see the wisdom of God's plan because it's invariably, whenever a nation has overstepped its boundaries in an effort to swallow up another country or to to take over another culture, that's when we start to see there's oppression and there's racial, uh, racial prejudice that develops and there's bitterness and death come as a result of this. And so while Paul is saying here that there's this beautiful unity of humanity Right? He says right there that God made everyone from one blood, right? All the nations from Adam through Noah. But very clearly, there's also a God-given diversity in our nationality. And he established these things and these boundaries in order to protect us until the time when Jesus would return and rule righteously and reign on the earth with righteousness. And the the point of all of this is Paul says that God does this, right? He's showered these innumerable mercies on men and he's protected and preserved and guided and provided for mankind for one specific purpose. It says there in order that they might seek after him. And that word grope there in verse 27, it's such a word that paints I think this powerful picture for us, it's that sense of, you know, reaching out for and feeling their way toward, right? It gives us the sense that people fighting through the darkness of, of disbelief and of unbelief and coming toward that light of the knowledge of him. You know, God has ordained and God has arranged that he could be very easily found by men in order that they might be able to fill up that God-shaped vacuum that he placed there in our hearts. You know, any person that's a thinking person at some point asks questions like, where did I come from? You know, why am I here? Where is it that I'm headed eternally? And of course, science tries to answer the first question. Philosophy wrestles with that second question. But really, it's only the Christian faith. It's only in the God of the Bible that we have a satisfactory answer to all three of those questions, right? Where I came from, why we're here, and where we're headed. You know, with this creator God who created us and who's actively involved in our lives so that we would seek after and so that we would find him. And notice that in all of this, imagine, put yourself in the sandals of the Athenians, because in all of this, in explaining God to them in these terms, 
Paul was really challenging the very core of the Athenians' understanding, right? That God is the creator, that we're his creatures, that we're dependent upon him, and that we're somehow responsible to him. This was a very different view of the world than these philosophers had. And yet what Paul recognized is that these philosophers had to change their ideas about God. They had to move from that place where they had their own personal opinions about God. They had to move then to an understanding of God according to what it is that he has told us about himself in his word. Those are the things that we need to know. Now, I want to say this as gently and I want to say this as graciously as I possibly can. And you guys know how much I love each one of you. And yet the truth is that your personal opinions about God matter very little. Just in the same way that my personal opinions about God matter very little. But what matters most are the things that God says to us about himself. The things that God says to us about who he is and about what he's done. And most importantly, what then our individual responsibility is to him as his creation. So watch the way next that Paul is going to pivot. He's now introduced to them this unknown God. But now he says that there's an urgent message for them from this God. Right, that the creator, the sustainer, has a message for his creation to those people who've been ignorant of him, to those people that have been looking for him in these different religions of their own making. Look at the way Paul continues which, with an urgent message from the true God, starting in verse 30. He says, truly, these times of ignorance God overlooked but now commands all men everywhere to repent because he has appointed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by the man whom he has ordained. And he has given assurance of this to all by raising him from the dead. So look at the ground Paul has covered. He went from knowing who God is, that he's the creator, to who we are, that we're his offspring, to our responsibility now before him, which is understanding him and worshiping him in truth, now to our accountability if we dishonor him, and that's judgment, unless, Paul says, we repent. And what Paul has just done is he's shown that life isn't simply some sort of a, a steady progress towards some sort of ultimate extinction, the way the Epicureans believed, nor was it a pathway to some sort of eventual absorption into God, the way the Stoics thought. But Paul says that life ultimately is a journey that ends at the judgment seat where God will judge in Jesus Christ. So here is kind of the climax, the, the crux of his message, and Paul focuses on the incarnation and the resurrection and the glorification of the Lord Jesus, right? That culmination of all of 
human history. Paul didn't at all preach any kind of a soft gospel here. He was boldly confronting the wrong ideas that the Athenians had about God. He confronted them with the reality that judgment would come to them, and then he calls on them to repent. In this case, to repent specifically about their flawed thinking. They had to change the direction that they were thinking. They had to do an about-face intellectually about their ignorance about the true God. Did you catch the way in these verses that Paul virtually takes all of the great Greek culture and he wipes it all away in one simple phrase, lumping it in as part of the times of ignorance. And that's so important, I think, because with all their wisdom and all their culture and all their art and achievement and intellect and philosophy, the Greeks had failed to find the true God. And the sense here in Paul's point is that those days of groping and of ignorance, those days were past, right? Because as long as men were having to search in the shadows, God was very patient with man's sin and patient with man's ignorance. But now in Jesus Christ, now that Jesus Christ had come, the full revelation of the knowledge of God had come and the day of excuses is now done. That's why Paul would write to the Colossians of Jesus. He says that in him dwells all the fullness of the Godhead in bodily form. To the Hebrews, he says that God, who at various times and in various ways spoke in time past to the fathers by the prophets, has in these last days spoken to us by his Son who being the brightness of his glory and the express image of his person and upholding all things by the word of his power, when he had by himself purged our sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. So if we trust in Jesus today, then he will save us. And yet if we reject him, then we know that tomorrow he will judge us. And the proof for all of this, Paul says here, he gives it there in verse 31, the proof of all of this is the resurrection. And I love the way that Paul seems to be unable to preach a sermon to any audience without focusing at some point on the resurrection of Jesus, because that is the fulfillment of everything else that God has done with mankind. It's all so interconnected. I love what one author wrote. I thought he put it so well. He says, we can learn from Paul that we cannot preach the gospel of Jesus without the doctrine of God. We can't preach the cross without creation. We can't preach salvation without judgment. And yet it was precisely here at Paul's very powerful declaration of the resurrection, this is the point that the Athenians kind of checked out intellectually. And we see that it's the point at which they also responded very apathetically. Look in verse 32. It says that when they heard of the resurrection of the dead, some mocked. 
while others said, we will hear you again on this matter. And so Paul departed from among them. However, some of the men joined him and believed, among them Dionysus the Areopagite, a woman named Damaris, and others with them. So this resurrection was not at all a popular idea amongst the Greek philosophers, right? And it was this critical doctrine of the resurrection, that's the point at which most of those members of the Mars Hill Council just couldn't accept. Some of them, it says, mocked Paul that he would even believe such a thing. The Greeks were very fond of the idea of the immorality of the soul, but not so much the idea of the resurrection of the body, because in the Greek thinking, the body was only a, a prison. And the sooner a person's spirit could leave his body, the happier they would be. So why in the world would you want to raise a dead body only so that you could continue to live in it? And so that's the point. It didn't agree with what they understood. So that's the point at which they cut him off and just shut him down. And no doubt, we get the sense that Paul was really just getting going here, right? He was just getting to the good stuff because far more than wanting to just quote the Greek poets, Paul wanted to tell them, I'm sure, more about the person and the work of Jesus. And so what we see, they cut him off and the results seem to be kind of mixed but maybe a little bit meager. It says there that only some men joined him. Now, you may have heard it taught, or you may have read that some look at this sort of seemingly limited success, and they've been critical of Paul's approach here in Athens. And they criticize this sermon here because they say there's no detailed references to the cross. There are no specific quotes from the Old Testament. And some propose that Paul kind of compromised his message for this intellectual audience, and that's the reason that there were no conversions. And they continue to criticize and say that their evidence of that is that when Paul went next to the city of Corinth, that he declared that I determined not to know anything among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. And then because Paul preached in that way there at Corinth, and the thinking goes, that he had better results when he got there. And yet, if you've heard that with respect, I have to say that I wholeheartedly disagree with that position, as do many other very well-respected Bible teachers, because Paul's sermon here was eminently biblical. I love what one author commented. He said this, that like the biblical revelation itself, Paul's argument begins with God the creator, the creator of all, and ends with God the judge of all. And the speech as it stands is admirably summarizes an introductory lesson in Christianity for cultured pagans. And as we've seen, we talked about, Paul did preach Christ crucified here in Athens. We just saw that he specifically mentioned the resurrection. And how could you possibly preach the resurrection without first preaching the cross, which came before it? Remember, this is very obviously just an extract from Paul's entire sermon there 
at the Areopagus because once again, if we read through this entire text, it would barely take us two minutes to just read. And so the truth is that the results here in Athens had far less to do with Paul or his approach, but had everything to do with the Athenians and the hardness of their hearts. Because here you have these proud, sophisticated, intellectually carried away, right? Seemingly wise Athenians, and they would not have taken easily to Paul's very humbling message of the gospel. Especially, again, as he wiped away their entire culture and all their achievements, labeling them as part of the times of ignorance. So the truth is that the soil here was not very deep and it was littered with more weeds and very little fertilizer to grow anything. And I believe that this is absolutely increasingly characteristic of the very culture that you and I are living in even today. So it was very typical in Athens, all they wanted to do was talk and discuss and debate. They did not particularly want action. They didn't even particularly want to come to conclusions. What they wanted was just mental gymnastics. They wanted kind of the, the stimulation or the workout of a mental hike. And remember, all of this is taking place in a purely pagan context without the foundation of any previous revelation about the one true God of the Bible. And so we ask, well, what in the world does this all mean for us? Well, I, I think it's this. If we compare the sermon Paul gave here in this pagan culture of Acts chapter 17, and if we compare it with the sermons of Peter and even the sermons of Paul that we've seen given in those more Jewish contexts, right? Given in the synagogues to the Jews and the Gentiles, those who were familiar with or who were already following after the God of Israel and where we see the reliance on the authority of the Bible and on the God of the Bible, if we look at both of these sermons through the lens of our current culture, I think that what we see is that our culture is increasingly a lot more like we see here in Acts chapter 17 and a lot less like we had seen back in Acts chapter 2 there in Jerusalem. Because in essence, what we're seeing is that because of our growing pluralistic society, right, with a good deal of materialism kind of increasingly pushed into the mix, if someone was to ask somebody else what their thoughts were on God, it's more and more likely that the God that's being referred to might have nothing at all to do with that historical sort of Judeo-Christian concept of God as revealed in the Bible. And more often than not, if you ask someone about their opinions about God, the answer to the question might be, well, which God are you talking about? We are increasingly presenting the gospel to a generation and within a population that may not even know 
who Jesus is or what sin is. They may have no belief in the basis of any kind of absolute truth at all. Our society is becoming more and more biblically illiterate. Truth is becoming more and more subjective. And so the result is that lots of people can't even comprehend the gospel message. They don't even understand their need for it, especially the way we typically present it in a church service. And the fact, I think, for us that we need to keep in mind is that we need now to start looking at the average person that we come into contact with just in the same way that Paul looked at the Greeks here on Mars Hill. Because the fact is that kids are coming of age today, or we have others that are are joining into our population, moving here from other places, and they have all come from these educational backgrounds where state schools have indoctrinated them with overwhelmingly anti-theistic worldviews and ideas. Now, don't misunderstand me. In no way at all has the gospel message changed at all. But the way in which it needs to be communicated especially outside the walls of the church, in this increasingly secularized culture, that's what needs to be adjusted in order for it to be more effective. Right, Taking that time to appeal to the creation as the evidence of the creator, appealing to his authority over that creation, highlighting our responsibility to him as the creator and his authority over us as his offspring. Then starting to establish the scriptures as his inspired message to his wayward children, presenting the problem of sin and our separation from him, and then that promise of forgiveness and reconciliation with the cross that comes as a result of the cross of Jesus. So we need to understand how to explain the gospel message to people like these Greeks, people who are not born into, haven't been raised with any kind of knowledge of the Bible or even an understanding or adherence to this Judeo-Christian ethic that we've taken for granted. Because of this, we need to grow as apologists for our faith. We need to grow in our ability to answer these kinds of questions. And don't misunderstand me here, what I'm about to say, but it's no longer enough to have some basic set of scriptures that we're ready to just unroll and throw at people who need Jesus. People today are just like the Greeks in Athens in that they love to discuss and they want to pick apart everything that's presented to them as truth. And so if we can't really explain for them, for instance, why the Bible is true, why it should be trusted and believed. If we can't explain to them why and show them where, it does contain very large ideas about scientific thought. Then if we can't do that, then our message of the good news of the cross of Christ, it's going to be rejected out of hand because the God of this world today is evolution. 
we need to be able to speak intelligently to where the Bible speaks to that issue. So all of this to simply say for this morning that we are living right here in Athens in Acts chapter 17, where we need to be able to build people a bridge to get them to the Bible and to get them ultimately to Jesus to fill that void and complete that vacuum that they know instinctively needs to be filled. So I think rather than, than be critical of Paul here, I think it's more important for us this morning to really take note of the way that he adjusted his approach and then maybe ask the Lord to show us some different ways that we might adjust our approach, not adjust our message, but simply adjust our approach. Because isn't our heart to simply get the gospel past the weeds, get it into the soil of people's hearts so that the spirit can do his work in bringing them to faith. Amen. Amen. So Father, we thank you for this morning and we do thank you for the example here of Paul on Mars Hill with the Athenians, Lord. And we just pray, Lord, that whatever it is that you have for us in this, Lord, wherever it is that, uh, that this might be instructive to us, Lord, or encouraging to us in the way that we share, the things that we share, Lord, we pray that you would, um, Lord, just help those things to resonate with our hearts, Lord, help us to know that your spirit is speaking to us, Lord, and giving us direction in these things. And so, Father, we thank you, Lord, and we praise you, and we do it, Lord, in Jesus' name. Amen. I love you, Lord, and I lift my voice to worship you. Oh, my soul, rejoice. Take joy, my King, in what you hear. Let it be a sweet, sweet sound in your ear. Let it be a sweet, sweet sound in your ear. Amen. Amen. God bless you guys today. And uh, just pray that he would pour out his grace upon you this week. And remember, we want to pray for you Monday night. We'd love to see you tonight if you're interested in coming out. Uh, and above all else, we want to minister to you. So if you have any needs um, please don't hesitate to let us know. So God bless you guys.